the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. Wednesday, September 21st, 2022. Our phone number 602-508-0960. That's 602-5080-960 if you would like to join the conversation. I, um, I was recalling someone once said of Ronald Reagan that um, he was a giant clipper that took a nervous American people on turbulent seas. And after eight years, he calmed both the people and the sea. I've always liked that quote about Ronald Reagan's presidency. And I've always thought that the best kind of political leadership is the kind that can calm down a frenzy. But I have to tell you, I just read a story that has me setting aside my monologue till later in the third hour that makes my blood boil. From Fox News, let me just read this to you. Headline, Fauci admits, Fauci admits he knew his draconian lockdowns would have collateral negative consequences on school children. Here's the story. National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases Director Dr. Anthony Fauci admitted Wednesday, that's today, that he knew the draconian, his word, COVID-19 policies he pushed for would lead to his phrase, collateral negative consequences for the economy and school children. Fauci's comments came during day one of the Atlantic Festival, a three-day convention put on by the media outlet The Atlantic, featuring speeches and interviews from prominent members of the media, the government, and political activists. During the event, Fauci spoke with The Atlantic editor, Ross Anderson, in front of a live audience about his experiences as the leading medical professional working in the federal government during the COVID-19 pandemic. In one segment of his talk, Fauci spoke about his guidance in instituting draconian, again, his word, pandemic guidance, knowing full well there would be collateral damage stemming from it. Before making his central point, Fauci first blamed the divisiveness of social media for turning every piece of his guidance during the pandemic into a confusing and controversial statement. So it's our fault. He said, when you have, quote, when you have a divisiveness in society where every time you say something, you have X number of people with social media looking to attack it, that adds to the understandable confusion when you're dealing with an evolving outbreak. Close quote. He then went on to say, of course, quote, of course, when you make recommendations, if the primary goal when you're dealing with a situation where the hospitals were being overrun in New York, ICU units were being put in hallways, you have to do something that's rather draconian, draconian. He likes that word. He continues. And sometimes when you do draconian things, it has collateral negative consequences. Just when you shut things down, even temporarily, it does have deleterious consequences on the economy and on the school children. You know that. Close quote. He goes on, if you shut things down just for the sake of it, that's bad. But if you do it with the purpose of being able to regroup so that you can then open up in a more safe way, well, 
that's the way to do it. Will no one rid us of this turbulent priest? Will no one rid us of this meddlesome priest? Interesting use of the word draconian, he keeps, he keeps stating. Draconian, named after Draco, the famous lawmaker, ancient Greece, who um, was known known for making everything the death penalty. Everything got the death penalty. It's where you get the word dragon from, if you want to put all the etymology together. And he's talking about draconian policies. I suppose he knows perhaps of what he speaks when it comes to this. But to blame social media, what he is doing is he is blaming people who were questioning things he was saying. We can run down the list of audio. We have played it again and again before in previous times. I don't want to take time to do it right now. But it started with his first statement out about in the early in the early phases of COVID in February of 2020, how masks were useless. Masks were not going to stop the pandemic. They might make you feel a little bit better. We went from there to it being your patriotic duty to wear a mask, lest you be responsible for the death of someone else. He went in 2020 from three times testifying before Congress saying we would not have a vaccine in 2020 to being proven wrong. We did get a vaccine. Funny enough, it came the week after the election. Funny enough, isn't it? Well, no, not if you take these things seriously and start and begin to wonder who was really playing politics with this. And, of course, he admitted to lying to the New York Times. He admitted to lying about herd immunity when he was changing the numbers and the media started to notice that it went from 80 to 85 percent to 90 percent. And he was forced to admit to the New York Times he held back the real number because he didn't think the American people could absorb it. Who is this expert to tell us what we can and cannot absorb and what we should and should not think? after a record of being wrong and wrong and wrong and wrong again. And as far as him knowing that there would be negative consequences for the children, negative consequences for closing down the schools and shutting down the economy, as for all that, he said not a word about any of that throughout the entire pandemic. And in fact, was part and parcel of a pandemic industry, um, a, a, a pandemic fright industry, a pandemic frenzy industry that shut down any talk whatsoever about the concerns over our youth and their mental health outcomes and their academic outcomes. He was part of shutting it down. So when you think about who this man is and what he said and what he did, and he is now shifting the blame because people were questioning his authority, one steps back and asks, who the real dragon is here. Blaming of the victims is one thing, but it's quite and entirely another when he was part and parcel of the effort to silence all this. We had uh, Eleanor McCants Katz on this show several times. She was the assistant secretary at Health and Human Services for Mental Health. She was making those warnings, and when we tried to broadcast those warnings of hers, we were censored. We were censored. We were not allowed to talk about those things. With all this censorship going on and all this deplatforming going on, it's hard to take him too terribly seriously about this notion that it was the fault of the critics. The fault of the critics, it was not. 
It was the fault of him and his school closure and economic shutdown policy that gave us all the problems we have now. And he's going to have to answer at some point. He is going to have to answer at some point for all the education deficits and all the mental health problems he has wrecked on our society. 71% of parents are reporting that the pandemic had taken a toll on their children's mental health, and 69% said the pandemic was the worst thing to happen to their children. A third of students are depressed more than usual, and mental health crises went on the rise. Mental health-related emergency department visits increased nearly 25% for children ages 5 to 11, and 31% for those aged 12 to 17, compared with the year before, 2019. That's what he and his policies did. That's what he is now, 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 after his president calls the pandemic over with the snap of a finger, now he is calling what we did draconian. What about all of those who were calling it draconian earlier on? What about all of us who said and noticed the data, the very serious data that the CDC was putting out, that children were not at risk here? More children are at risk by a factor of several hundred from drowning each year than they are from COVID. Several hundred may not sound like a lot to you, but it is a lot when you consider that COVID didn't take the lives of more than 1,500 children under the age of 18. It didn't take the lives of more than 1,300 children under the age of 18. Instead, what we did was we put panic in the heads of children, letting them carry the emotion and the emotional guilt and fear that they were going to infect their moms and dads and brothers and sisters and grandmas and grandpas. As you um, regular listeners to this show like to know, I like to quote the line about how all revolutions end up eating their children. But I like to quote it in full. Because the line in full is, like Saturn, all revolutions end up eating their children. Saturn was the god who ate his own children because he feared their power. He feared their power. It is a sick society that fears its children and puts the responsibility for adult concerns on the youth of this country. Fauci should be ashamed of himself. And anyone who listened to him and took direction from him should be ashamed of themselves. But, of course, the worst form of shame is having none. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. We're doing a great event up next month, October 23rd. We're calling it the Battleground Talkers Tour. We're bringing in Brandon Tatum and Charlie Kirk and Mike Gallagher. Uh, it's going to be an afternoon event. Um, it's going to be fantastic. Right ahead of the election, we'll have some other special guests, and I'll be there. And right now, if uh, you're the um, second caller to our line, 8602-508-0960, we will give you... Uh, a pair of premium tickets uh, to this event on October uh, 23rd. Uh, you can learn more about it at 960thepatriot.com for those of you that might not be the second caller. But if you are caller number two, we will give you a pair of premium tickets. Um, we have uh, VIP passes. We have the premium tickets. And we also have general admission over 
uh, at 960thepatriot.com for just $5. $5 gets you in uh, in the general admission. But I'm giving you a pair of uh, premium tickets um, right now if you are the caller number 2 at 602-508-0960. Uh, looks like we have caller 2. So if you're calling, um, you can... Uh, you can uh, try again if we give them away again, which we will uh, on another day, or you can get tickets at 960thepatriot.com. Um, talking about, speaking of, thinking about the torturing we put our children through, <clears throat> academically as well as mentally as well as emotionally, I've always found it, or for a while I have, <clears throat> excuse me, for a while now I have found it ironic that one of the buzz phrases in education is social and emotional health, social and emotional well-being, social and emotional learning. SEL is how you sometimes see it uh, see it written down. Um, so while we're thinking about social and emotional learning, might we not take a step back and also think about this whole foisted upon our children the sexualization and the books of sexualization are in our classrooms. This is Banned Books Week, uh, hosted by, promoted by the American Library Association. The American Library Association is a menace. It is a menace to society. And they have been going on about how too many conservative communities are still into banning books. You may recall that uh, you, you, you have seen in years, decades past, um, a field of dreams. <laughs> you know, the conservatives are always about banning books. This is what got Whoopi Goldberg in trouble on The View when she claimed Hitler wasn't a white supremacist. It had to do originally with the debate over banning books. Well, the American Library Association is pushing Banned Books Week. And they list a series of books that they believe are being wrongly or wrongfully banned. Uh, take a look at some of those books and take a look at the bigger story here, which is this. I cannot state over these airwaves what is in some of these books. So highly and grotesquely sexualized they are. Adults can probably not tweet about them without severe editing. Adults could probably not send them over any other forms of social media without severe editing. They are so gross and grotesque. Um, take a look at some of these books. Take a look at what Christopher Rufo is putting up over at his website on the sexualization of children through some of these books. Take a look at the National Education Association, which now has, I hate to tell you this, I hate to tell you this, the National Education Association now has a LGBTQ plus caucus, which is creating a website on how to teach children about, their words, non-binary identities, queer sex, and how transgender men can actually get pregnant. Do you not long for the days when organizations like the National Education Association actually cared about just educating our children and not changing their minds and ruining their social and emotional learning? Used to be social science and psychological research and 
children and adolescent psychological and social research showed that exposing children to these adult sexualized themes at too early an age will change them for life, will change them negatively for life. Now we're trying to push and force it into them. I can't use some of the words that these teacher union that the teacher union is putting out. But let me just say this. The NEA Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Bisexual, Transgender, and Queer Caucus um, has a resource, has a series of resources for all fa- all kinds of educators across all ages. I'm, I'm going to ask you to spend some time looking at it if this is an area that concerns you. You will be shocked. You will be absolutely shocked if this is a society that can still have shock and surprise. I think it is because I thought I'd seen it all. And I'm telling you, having spent, I don't know, decades in federal education policy and decades uh, having to do with literacy issues and teaching civics, knowing what was out there, I am shocked. I am shocked by what they are putting out there. Notice, too, how interesting it is that when these issues first came to the fore, when they were first spoken about by the likes, yes, of course, Christopher Rufo, but also Bethany Mandel and others. Notice that this was all being denied. People were saying Republicans, conservatives, right-wingers were making all this stuff up. Now they strut about it and tell us we're the wrong ones, we're the antediluvian for wanting to not just point it out, but shut it down. They are now not only admitting to it, they're trying to mandate it. This is the socialist Marxist, what do we call it, dialectic. It is the socialist Marxist dialectic at play in the education system right here in the United States of America. You first deny, then you shame people, and then you mandate it. You deny you shame them for the criticism of it once it becomes obvious beyond all pure adventure, and then you mandate it. This is, this is the trajectory we're on. When we're talking about looking at these races for state legislature, we're going to have a candidate for state legislature on in the show a little bit later. When you're talking about these school board races, I can understand. I can understand why this administration, why the Biden administration would want to shut down parents and put them in apprehension of fear for speaking up about this. I would understand that just as much as I would understand why Anthony Fauci would want to censor alternative viewpoints that turned out to be more correct than his pronouncements from Mount Olympus. But the most important thing is for you to educate yourselves on this and not be ashamed. It's not banning a book when you're trying to get out of the curriculum and out of the schools things that are toxic to children's minds. It wasn't banning education when we shut down schools, was it? Well, it's not banning books when we have something that affects children's minds far more than COVID ever affected their lungs. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. The great John Dombrowski is with us. He is the president and founder of Grand Canyon Planning Associates. His website is grandcanyonplanning.com, and he has his own radio show right here every Saturday morning at 7 a.m. 
the word on wealth. John Dombrowski, welcome back to the show. Work work never stops. Seth. It never <laughs> stops. Big day, uh, really, in yeah. Washington, D.C. You had uh, the Fed mm-hmm. doing what we talked about yesterday, raising the, um, raising the interest rate another 0.75 percentage points. Right. And then you had testimony also of a group of bankers, mm-hmm. uh, Citigroup and Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan, et cetera, et cetera. Um, let me start first, if I can, with the um, with the seven uh, the point seven five percentage uh, interest rate increase. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we thought this would happen, but there's an interesting line in a Wall Street Journal article. I'm reading about it. It says central bank officials predict projected they would lift the benchmark rate at least by another one point two five percentage points by December. Right. So does that mean we're looking at a couple more of these? Yes, uh, we. I believe so, and I, I think again that was something that was considered. Uh, also, possibly another interest rate hike in 2023, yeah. as well okay. another quarter point possibly. Okay. Uh, you know what was interesting about this, and I think the markets reacted negatively to n- not necessarily the three quarter percent interest rate hike which they expected. It was really the comments that uh, were made yeah. after that, which is, hey, we're going to stay the course here, and we're going to keep these rates. You know, elevated for a period of time. We're right. not just going to hit hit our mark and then just automatically begin to lower rates again. Uh, the, they have this fear, and it's justified, of course, that they do not want to repeat what happened 40 years ago, and they want to make sure that they do get inflation and keep it at bay and move it. You know, just as as things rise so quickly, Seth, it's very difficult to to fix them as quickly as they rose. It's going to take some time, and they need to do this in an orderly fashion. And uh, someone asked me the other day, I don't know if it was yourself or, or, or somebody asked, what if they just would have you know, gave, given this raise all Oh, yeah, yeah, time? I had mentioned that yesterday. Yeah. Just quit, and, the, and, quit the drip, drip, and just do it all at yeah, once. Yeah, that would have been too much of a shock yeah. to the system, okay. right? And it's, 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 we're at a level here now that these raises that are occurring are – even though they're affecting, you know, other areas of the market, we're seeing, of course, in, at the Wall Street Journal had, had an article here too about, uh, I think it was Google and Facebook or Meta Corporation uh, cutting staff. Yeah. And uh, Walmart also not going to be hiring as many part-time workers as they did last year for the season. So uh, this is uh, what the Fed is trying to do. They're trying to slow the economy down, and it's having an effect on the economy. There's no question about it. And it may take a little longer than people would like or, uh, you know, investors would like, but it is working. One of one of the things that I thought was interesting was the bank executives who were testifying on Capitol Hill today. They were all asked if they thought that the Fed had the will to uh, continue to raise interest rates to fight inflation if they had to. And all the all the all the bankers, all the heads, the CEOs of these banks said they did think the Fed had the will. Is that is that really what it's about, though? I mean, in a way, isn't it a question also of other policies that coming that are coming out of Washington, D.C.? I mean, it's not all just on the Fed to correct um, the uh, the the inflation we're seeing now isn't it incumbent too in a way on the public policy and the fiscal spending side There's to restrain no so that the Fed doesn't so that we don't how shall I put this create problems in order to find solutions yeah, yeah you know Seth yes I'm I'm trying to find the photograph that I saw it was on one of the news feeds whether yeah. it was Wall Street Journal or CNBC or yeah. one of them where there was a picture a photograph of of them touting the Inflation Reduction Act right. 
and it said, we passed the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, to, to battle inflation. And then right below that, on the same sign that they had, had shown, it says, this is the largest money that we've put towards climate <laughs> right. climate uh, change. Yeah. So, in other words, we're trying to battle inflation, but we're spending all of this money that's right. on something that's not going to fight inflation. So it was a complete, uh, you know, opposite message on the sign that they were holding up. It was it was really funny to see, and I, I wish I had it to, to quote it exactly. Uh, oh, no, I, I, I know what you're speaking of, and and, and it's maddening yeah. uh, because it, for a lot of people, you know, they didn't ask for this, and for a lot of people who are trying to buy homes or cars or even get credit cards, yeah. uh, the, these these Fed policies, they, 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 they hit the hardest hit, the worst. The rates, yeah. as they're going up like this, I will say there's one bright side to this whole thing for those who have a lot of money in the bank and yeah. just sitting idle yeah. you may be able to get a cd now that's going to pay you one and a half or two percent oh okay <laughs> one and a half and two john dombrowski you're the best thank you sir all right securities and advisory services offered to client one securities llc a member of finra and sipic and an investment advisor grand canyon planning associates llc and client one securities llc are not affiliated thank you seth you betcha i'm okay. seth liebson and we will be right back Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. It is a delight to bring back our constitutional law expert, Brett Johnson. He is a partner with the Snell and Wilmer Law Firm, offices here in Phoenix and throughout the nation, SWLaw.com. Brett Johnson, welcome back. How are you, sir? Good. Thank you for having me, Seth. You betcha. There is an earthquake of an opinion, at least I think so, out of the Fifth Circuit, I believe it's called Net Choice versus Paxton, Ken, Ken Paxton being the Attorney General of Texas, which um, goes to the issue of social media organizations like Twitter, particularly Facebook, if you want, um, and their ability to engage in, to put it uh, no lower, censorship. Uh, the Fifth Circuit weighed in in a big way, at least again the way I see it in this decision. Uh, tell me if it's as big as I think and, and how you read this this very long decision. <laughs> a very long decision. I gave you a long indeed. assignment there. I know. You, you, you did. 90 you pages, did. I think. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think all together with everything involved, 113 pages. There you uh, go. That is how I print it. I but, put it but, on a know, curve. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> curve. Uh, well, so the Fifth Circuit, yes, it, it, the, the case, that choice versus the work versus Paxton is, 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 a, is an earthquake, definitely in the First Amendment world. But uh, uh, you have to remember there was an earthquake before this in the 11th Circuit, okay. dealing with one of the same parties, Net Choice, who sued the Attorney General in that case, um, for basically the same thing. So uh, as I go through the history here, you got to remember that the, uh, the Florida and the 11th Circuit uh, decided something different. But the 5th Circuit, basically, um, Texas came out with a law, and it primarily had two uh, main points. Um, one is uh, that the, uh, um, social media companies, Twitter, Facebook, things of that nature, that they needed to have um, um, basically no censorship, as you mentioned. They were not able to to remove postings or block postings uh, regardless of um, of the material and regardless of the user agreement that if anybody's on social media, you know that's also 116 pages yeah. when you click it. Yeah. Um, so regardless of all of that. But the secondary uh, point was that they um, had to be transparent in their processes and, and explain a lot more materials. And those were two major points in both uh, the this circuit case and the 11th circuit case. They actually uh, pretty much agreed, by the way, on the transparency provision. 
regulations, that yeah. those were lawful requirements that the state law could say, hey, you need to tell your users what you're doing. Sure. We don't really care about your user agreements. You need to be more transparent with them. But they, they did have a, a significant split on this censorship issue. And as I've mentioned before, and obviously it's gone down to the circuit level here now, the Supreme Court over the last year and a half, um, ever ever since Justice Barrett got onto the court, it has been very, very historical base where they've gone all the way back to even pre-founding, pre-revolution, yeah. to get to the tenets of, uh, um, of, our, of our Constitution. And the Fifth Circuit did that again here, is that he went back for a very nice history lesson on the First Amendment and the ability um, of, uh, of private companies, publication companies, etc., to to engage in censorship. So you work your way forward, and the district court in Texas said, "Listen, this is a private company. A private company is able to do censorship if that's what they so choose, because the government is not a governmental act. A government can't um, um, engage in censorship. A government cannot violate your First Amendment rights. But a private company, you're choosing to go onto Facebook, then then go ahead." Um, that was immediately stayed by the Fifth Circuit. This all happened very quickly over several months, by the way. Um, and then that was, interesting, overruled by the Supreme Court. The majority opinion of the Supreme Court, um, there was no majority. It just was a, a one-liner. Uh, the, the, the stay of the injunction is what we call it. That was, that was just um, lifted. And it got kicked back to the Fifth Circuit. So in traditional fashion of the Fifth Circuit, they said, oh, no, you didn't. And they immediately um, basically issued the the very lengthy opinion that we have here, um, kind of working with the dissent that did occur in the Supreme Court that had very big questions about how the censorship was going, as well as the role of the social media. So as a little bit more of a background, and I'll I'll turn it over to you, Seth, is is that social media companies, since their inception, inception, have been trying to avoid one major thing, and it starts with a D, and it's called defamation. They have said over and over again, we are just a platform. We are not managing speech. Therefore, we should not be liable for any defamation claims. If Seth goes on and says something about somebody else, that's between Seth and that third person keep us out of it. And Congress agreed with them and gave them an exception because they were not managing speech. They were acting as a platform. And the Fifth Circuit really captured on to that and said, because you're not a traditional publisher, you are not engaged in speech, since you're not engaged in speech, you shouldn't be engaged in censorship either. Secondarily, one last little point is is that um, there's a concept of common carriers, right. which this has been pushed by a lot of people on the, on the campaign trail for the last year and a half. So it's interesting that it's now gotten a lot of traction within this court opinion. Common carriers, way back, is usually a transportation company. You know, you've got a bus system or a train or, or a plane. They have to let everybody on. Right. You they can't, can't, you discriminate, can't discriminate, even though they're they're right. private companies. Southwest Airlines companies. is private. Greyhound is yeah. private, but you cannot discriminate. Can't discriminate. Right. And utilities the same way. Telephone companies the same way. And sometimes I'm sure you wish the telephone companies would discriminate so you wouldn't get so many <laughs> robocalls. But but um, it, it, when you get to that level, we're basically providing the service to the entire company, our entire community. In this case, for the social media, they are providing a public square. They're providing a platform where they're not speaking. They're just providing the platform. And because in Texas's case, the social media, you had to get up to 50 million users to be considered in this category, the, the Fifth Circuit said, you've now reached a point, you're not regulating the speech, since you're not, uh, since you're not speaking, 
you can't censor it either. So that's a little bit of background. I know that was a, a long, no, no, no. It's good. No, 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 no. That that was great. And this common carrier thing is what a lot of us have been trying to push. You mentioned that this has been an argument on the campaign trail. Yes. Uh, have been trying to push onto these social media companies that are engaging in the kinds of censorship. And so this common carrier thought basically is whoever your local telephone provider is or, you know, your cellular phone provider, they can't deny service to, I don't know, pick something, uh, Blake Masters. They can't they can't deny service to a Blake Masters because they don't agree with his political points of view, just as Greyhound can't forbid me to get on their bus because they don't like my political point of view, right? That's the way that, we're thinking about this here. That That's ex- that's exactly right. And and the same thing, um, going back to the robocalls, whoever it might be, left or right, when you're getting that robocall, yep. the telephone company is not responsible for stopping that robocall to you. Um, there's other laws in place, but, but not the telephone company. And then the big distinction here, and you were putting your finger on it a little bit, Brett, I wanted to hammer it out a little bit more with you, is between an or a, a social media company and a newspaper publisher or magazine. I have to take a break. Can I keep you one sure. more segment? Absolutely. All right. Let me get the thought out as we go to break, and we can we can think on it as we come back. When we come back, the point is this: um, the New York Times or National Review, they're what has been called curating articles. They're responsible for the content they put out there. They usually pay people to write for them. That's totally different from the social media situation where, you know, you or I may put our own thoughts on there, irrespective of even knowing who edits or who's in charge of Facebook or Twitter. In other words, Facebook and Twitter isn't paying us to write for them the way the New York Times or some other um, conservative outlet. And that's the distinction there, too. Brett Johnson, I'll be right back to pick up on this thread. Don't go away. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Brett Johnson is our guest. He's a partner with the law firm of Snell and Wilmer. Uh, Brett, we're talking about this case out of the Fifth Circuit, which is saying that social media companies, think Twitter, think Facebook, they um, they cannot rely on the claim that they are protected by the First Amendment when they engage in censorship. And for people who might say, whoa, what does this say to newspapers? What does this say to National Review, do they have to accept writings from the left? Does the New York Times have to accept uh, writings from, I don't know, people like you or me, perhaps? No. The the Fifth Circuit talked about this distinction of curation. Can you say something about that if, if I'm on the right path here? No, no, you're you're absolutely right, and um, and and the other thing is, is those editors um, do not have uh, you know a, a get out of jail free card on defamation or lying about uh, the people. They have to do due diligence. You know, journalism has to do due diligence. Obviously, if they're repeating things in the public record, um, it. it, it they get some protections underneath First Amendment laws as being, you know, the importance of journalism and, and getting information out there. But they're still subject to false light, defamation, sure. and they are also adamant about, about controlling the content that is going into their publication. So they have editors, they are doing their due diligence, and, and a majority of the time, as you mentioned, they are paying for that commentary. Now, in some cases, they're not. The opinion sure. letters that you get sure. through publications or, or somebody says, like, I really want to be like a ad hoc journalist, and they, and they write an article on something, and it gets picked up. That that is, but that's still within um, you know the journalism type things. That the and, and even the. Um 
the social media entities, the platforms, as they're called by the Fifth Circuit, did not try to really make the argument that they were regulating. They, they tried to make the argument that they were regulating contact content through their algorithms. Yeah. And but it was just it wasn't on a case by case specific, and and it it, it was bare, basically superficial as basically court um, recognized. It wasn't it wasn't real the way that true publications do because those publications are trying to um, improve their brand. And, and actually cater to a specific segment of society, not necessarily to the general public. Whereas the platforms, again, they were providing a, a public square where everybody is welcome to speak what they want. And then through their algorithms or otherwise, they were picking and choosing yeah. who got to speak and who didn't. And that, that, um, and that was the big distinction. Now, if the platforms want to go back to Congress and say, hey, we were just joke- joking about 16, 17 years ago when we were getting started, we'll take the defamation, yep. we'll take the other liability, yep. and we'll actually start regulating it from our perspective and telling everybody that uh, of what our perspectives are, you know, they might be they might be able to have a better case, but um, they, they can't ask for protection in one area and then try to get uh, the um, you know get out of it on the other side. Chances this goes to the Supreme Court are really high, Guaranteed. aren't they? Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, but but you know, I know we don't have much time, but I think that this, as with all of the cases that have come over the last year, um, it's going to have ramifications that people haven't even thought about. Oh yet. yeah, yeah. We'll spend some more time on it too uh, in our future visits, Brett Johnson. Thank Thank you for your time and for your brain. Really appreciate you, Brett. Thank you. Thank you. You betcha. I'm Seth Liebson. Don't go away, folks. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 